In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we don't have much to talk about. I yeah, mean not really much going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know why we're doing an episode. I guess I guess that's it, you know. Thank you for yep. listening to the Perspectrum and we'll see you again next week. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm so excited for this episode, actually. I am I, I don't I don't know if excited is the right word. <laughs> like I have been ever since everything happened yesterday i have been really wanting to do this episode yeah but i don't know if excitement is the right word today Mm. we're going to be talking about the uh attempted insurrection Mm -hmm. um yesterday which well in in, in the united states of america by the way yeah that's we're just to be clear of america on wednesday uh, then we're going to talk about the Georgia runoff election and the results of that, mm-hmm. which will hopefully strike a much lighter tone than the rest of this pod. Uh, and then we're going to end today by talking about a very light uplifting topic. subject. Yeah. The death penalty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. But before, but before that, let's start on a high note. With the COVID numbers. To, to be fair. This is going to be a depressing episode. <laughs> to be fair, we just thought our first segment was going to be about, you know, Trump, yeah. like, criminally attempting to force a secretary of the state or whatever for Georgia to, like, you yeah. know, to just make up some votes. We just thought it was going to be a lighthearted, ele- uh, you know, Trump yeah, fraud We, we thought segment. that was going to be our main subject. Yeah. And now I don't even, I don't even think we're going to really talk about that much. I mean, you know, we were going to talk about how that might be grounds for impeachment, but I think, you know, inciting yeah. an insurrection, sedition. you know, sedition, I think that might be worse. <laughs> I think that's worse. But anyways, <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that's worse. <laughs> Uh, so what are the COVID numbers? Okay. Please give me, please give me some good news. Uh, nope. <laughs> None of that. Um, worldwide, we've had 88.4 million people contract COVID, which is up from 84.5 million seven days ago, um, or a 4.6% increase in total cases in one week. So far, 1.91 million people have died from COVID worldwide, which is up from 1.84 million last week, which is a 3.8% increase in total deaths. In the U.S., 22.1 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 20.7 million last week, which is an uh, increase in total cases of 6.8%, which is pretty much the same elevated level that it's been for the past few weeks. And it's about 200,000 new cases per day. So far, 373,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID, which is up from 357,000 last week, which is about 2,300 deaths per day or a 4.5% increase in total deaths. So even as vaccines are starting to roll out, 
we're we're starting to see the consequences of everybody going home for the holidays. Yeah. So keep wearing masks, keep social distancing. We're not out of it yet. We yeah. we do see the light at the end of the tunnel as as we do keep bringing up. We do see it, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And, and, and we only see it if we press on. Like if we were to relax yeah. everything right now, things would get yeah. Even with a vaccine on the horizon, things would get immeasurably worse. All so right, with that, <laughs> now that our now that our health is deteriorating, now that our population is is dying, let's talk about our democracy numbers, deteriorating. Let's talk about our democracy. Yeah. So, um, so all of this, God, I, unless you've been living under a rock, you might have heard that uh, on Wednesday a, a bunch of right wing protesters done stormed the Capitol building. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All of this uh, started with a rally that Trump had at the beginning of the day where he was directly trying to encourage Michael Pence. I don't even know why I called him Michael Pence. It's always my, I don't even know why I said his full name. <laughs> Is that even his full name? I don't think. Yeah, I don't it's, think it's Michael name. Pence. I think it's but Mike. Yeah, I don't know. People named Michael. Gross. <laughs> uh, in which he directly uh, insisted that his vice president just throw out the results of the election, which he does not have the power to do Mm -hmm. and he didn't try to do. And he encouraged his supporters to basically go to the Capitol and start protesting. And he actually told them that he would be marching with them on the Capitol, which Mm -hmm. by the way, he didn't, he immediately went home and watched everybody else do it on TV because of course he did. Um, and it started out with just a bunch of people outside the Capitol, just casually protesting against democracy because sure. that's something that we casually not do. Not cool, but not illegal. <laughs> yeah, not cool, not illegal. You know, even like uh, neo-Nazis who directly protest against the First Amendment are allowed yep. to use the First Amendment in order to protest against the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. It's constitutional. It's legal, as it should be. A uh, bunch of people protesting out in front of the Capitol against democracy. Uh, it's, it's a bad look. It's a bad yep. look for pretty, a, pretty hypocritical. Yep. But it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, nor should it be. Nor should it be. And then it kind of took a little bit of a turn for the illegal when protesters stormed the barricades. Yeah. Like they were spraying police officers with pepper spray. Mm-hmm. They were breaking windows. They were... They like, were scaling the walls of the Capitol building. They were scaling building. the walls. There was, act- there was one video, apparently, where there were some police officers that actually removed the barricades and let mm. protesters in. Yeah. yeah. Which I, 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 I want to see more about the context of that video before I jump to any major conclusions. Yeah. I mean, but if it's not consistent with the rest of the police's actions, yeah. it was basically a retreat. Like, they were just trying to get away they they didn't they didn't form a line outside they were like their their barrier was immediately compromised they kind of retreated to the steps eventually retreated inside yeah this was this was like a violent attack on the capitol building can we take a minute and discuss the stark contrast Mm -hmm. between how how the police responded to people infiltrating the Capitol, which is a supposed to be a secure government building Mm -hmm. and how they responded to, uh, black lives matter protesters standing 
in front of a church that yeah. the president wanted to have a photo op on mm-hmm. like, and, and just in general, the, uh, the attitude towards black lives matter protesters. Look, Michael and I have repeatedly condemned rioters and looters. And we've also acknowledged the fact that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that accounts for a very small percentage of all instances. Mm-hmm. You know, we even had our friend, uh, uh, Ted come on here and talk about his own experience. He got tear gassed while he was sitting on his front porch. Yeah. In so how is yeah. it that, you know, during a protest against black people being murdered by police officers, that someone can get tear gassed on their own damn front porch. But when rioters are committing insurrection by infiltrating a government building yeah, and that's supposed to be secure, it. like, how is it that this was not under control? Now... Well, part of the reason was, <laughs> at least at least ostensibly, was because they... Um, the Pentagon had such a strong reaction to the Black Lives Matter protests. They claim that they didn't want to be seen as having, you know, as as having egg on their face again. So even though they had like 300 plus, um, you know, Defense Department, like National Guardsmen, excuse me, National Guardsmen, like ready to go, they specifically were nowhere near the Capitol building. And you know- when, when the Capitol Police requested for them to send reinforcements and backup in they delayed the process they didn't approve it right away so look i am one of the most pro protest people that you will ever see i strongly believe in the first amendment mm-hmm. um like i have taken pro first amendment stances in favor of right wingers against left wingers uh who have tried to do things like take down people's social media before. Um, I have spoken out against anti-protest laws, but if there was ever a time to call in the National Guard, it's when people are storming the United States Capitol. And the thing is, like, this is a case of completely, like, messed up, mixed up priorities on the part of the Pentagon. Because... Because according to the Center for Strategic International Studies, um, within this year, so uh, this specific study was from uh, January 1st to August 31st in 2020, uh, 67% of all attacks and plots of terrorism were committed by right-wing extremists Mm -hmm. versus only 20% committed by left-wing extremists. Mm. All right? 67%. So if there's ever a group with a political agenda that has a bigger chance of committing violence, if there's ever a type of protest that has a bigger chance of turning violent, it is far right wingers. The police do intelligence and recon at these kinds of protests. They'll send people out to talk to people and see what the general feeling and, you know, um, tenor of the crowd is to try to anticipate whether there'll be problems. So yeah. I don't know I don't know how they were caught so off guard in this context. Yeah. yeah. They're probably because the protesters were largely white. Yeah. 
Um, now, this did result in apparently four people dying. Yeah. Uh, one of them, we already, uh, we already know more of the details of. Apparently, there was this one woman who was an Air Force veteran mm-hmm. uh, who apparently was, like, storming the area where Mike Pence was. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know a lot of the details of the specific... Uh, I don't know the specifics of that. Uh, I don't know if she was armed herself. So apparently um, the police believe that she was unarmed, but okay. that she was in a group of people that were um, uh, that were coming after two law enforcement officers. And so like they were fired upon and uh, and she was shot in the in the shoulder. And uh, importantly, the police were told to expect if they interacted with this crowd that they might be carrying weapons yeah. secretly. Um, yeah. Because they were, like, if you haven't seen the photos, the people are in tactical gear for the most part. Often yeah. they've got helmets and goggles and, like, you yeah. know, bulletproof vests or or what look like bulletproof vests. Like, they are, it's the kind of thing that you might wear if you were trying to break into a government building and overwhelm the police. Yeah. And these are the same people that have been chanting Blue Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, people that... These are people that, like, on the one hand, carry will carry into the Capitol building that they're storming, blue, like, Blue Lives Matter flags, and literally, like, attack and beat the police officers inside. Yeah. Like, I, I, I read that apparently someone um, tried to—someone, like, replaced the flag, uh, one of the flags that was on the Capitol, with a, a, a Trump flag. Mm. Like, Jeez. these, these yeah. were— these were insurgents. Yes. Like, this is a case of insurrection. They attacked a government building. This was treason. Yeah. Like, there were people who were in, who were on the floor of the Senate and the House. Mm-hmm. Like, trying to execute to the... their constitutional duty. Yeah. Like, you couldn't have gotten, like, more of a seditious time to go and attack this building and these people. Yeah. And they they were were... like evacuated into these, into like bunkers underneath the Capitol because like, who knows what these, the, the rioters, the rebels were going to do. There were, there are photographs of, of security, like pointing guns out of a window that is being smashed in while, while there are, there are photographs of people hiding in offices with the doors barricaded, one aide who didn't get swept up in the, um, in, in the evacuation, uh, like barred a door that he was behind for, with a steel rod and protesters tried to get in for 20 minutes. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's, There's an image of some random dude sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office. Yeah. Like they, they broke into a, they broke into the offices of congressional representatives. Mm-hmm. Like they, yeah, they destroyed uh, and took property. Yeah. And these idiots took selfies of themselves while they were doing it. Yeah. They were like, Oh, look at me committing treason. I should put my face all over the internet. So it's easier for the cops to arrest me. Yeah. Jesus. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and apparently the, the mayor of DC, um, after asking the Department of Defense to deploy the D.C. National Guard, because remember, D.C. isn't a state, and so they can't deploy yeah. their own National Guard. They've got, they have got 
to have the president or a delegate of his do that. So after when they were delaying in 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 deploying their National Guard, um, the mayor of D.C. reached out to Governor Northam and Governor Hogan of Virginia and Maryland, respectively. Meanwhile, these governors are getting calls and texts from their colleagues inside the Capitol pleading with them to send in help because they're not getting it. This is fucking nuts. Yeah. This doesn't happen in the United States. Like, the last, I believe, like, the last time that the Capitol was breached was, like, in the 1870s, Mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the type of lockdown that occurred, I was, I was seeing people, uh, I was seeing people talk about how the type of lockdown that occurred hasn't happened since 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, these are our elected representatives. These are our government officials. I mean, this is not how we deal with them. Like, you don't like your government officials? Criticize them, vote them out, call them assholes? You don't, you don't go to the floor of the Senate, like, breaking shit. Yeah. And try to intimidate them out of, out of certifying an election that yeah. was legitimate. Yeah, that they are constitutionally required to certify. Like, on that day, they had to do this. <laughs> you know, like... It, it. It was their duty. They were just executing their duty, and these people yeah, did their best and to here's, stop it. And here's the other thing. Like, let's go back to why they were protesting. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, the Republican Party, not all of them were completely on board with the attempt to... Uh, to just overturn the results of the election. In fact, sure. there was only like maybe, uh, I think like 12 of them that yeah. were at that this were point ad- initially, initially that were planning on trying to overturn it. And that's, but that's like, that's month, that's a month or so after the actual election took place. Yeah. The fact is that this has been building intent. Like this public outrage has been intentionally built by Trump and, and, uh, other supporters in the Republican Party for a month or more, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the thing is, like, the allegations were so serious that, honestly, in a reasonable world, mm-hmm. if they were true, they would warrant something like this. Like, if... If someone actually stole an election, if someone actually like committed voter fraud to the scale that Donald Trump was alleging, if all of his claims were actually true, mm-hmm. then that would mean that Joe Biden was a completely illegitimate president. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've we've seen things like this in other countries where when that happens, like there have been full-on rebellions. Like, the response, if those allegations were actually true, would seem a lot more reasonable. But let's acknowledge the fact that they never had any truth to them. Yeah, and everyone, never any evidence. Everyone in an elected position knew that. Yes. There were 62 lawsuits. Donald Trump did 62 lawsuits. And 61 of them were thrown out. And the only one that wasn't was like, 
some procedural thing where they said, oh, well, people can't go back and fix their ballots three days after the election or some shit like that. Like, didn't didn't affect the results at all. Mm -hmm. 61 failed lawsuits. They had a chance to show their evidence to a judge. And mind you, these were primarily like these these were judges these were courts that were packed with conservative justices yeah, appointed absolutely. by donald trump yeah even they McConnell, had their day in court literally even mcconnell on on the floor before certifying the electoral college votes said quote voters the courts and the states have all spoken they've all spoken if we overrule them it will damage our republic forever like even mcconnell on the day yeah. was saying was a master not of only damaging that, our republic <laughs> yeah yeah who's yeah who and and who delayed on on you know coming to a conclusion about these fake voter fraud claims for a long time but even him on the day of certifying the election was was encouraging his colleagues not to overrule a legitimate election that has been adjudicated not only by by the public in our electoral system but thoroughly by the courts but and, here's the thing. But here's the thing with McConnell and with other Republicans. Like, he may not have been completely echoing the allegations of Donald Trump, but mm -hmm. he did not do anything yeah. in order to fight against it because he knows that that helps Republicans. Mm -hmm. He knows that that fires up Republicans. He knew that if he started going off on Trump, that would jeopardize their chances in Georgia. Yeah. That that would jeopardize them in the future. I mean, remember the birther movement? <laughs> you know, Mitch McConnell knew it was bullshit, yeah. but he never said anything. He never condemned Donald Trump. He never condemned anybody for that. And that is yeah. the biggest problem with the Republican Party. The fact that even the establishment folk that don't believe the crazy bullshit that the most extreme right-wingers peddle to their supporters they know that it that it helps them. Yeah. They know that they can take advantage of it and use it to galvanize support for them. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they're unwilling to do the right thing. So this was an example of that coming back to bite them in the ass. Yeah. And you know what I think is kind of funny? Like there's this classic joke about how Republicans always have this attitude of, well, until it affects me, I don't give a shit. I mean... You know, Dick Cheney, like Dick Cheney, he, uh, you know, he's one of the most conservative people that has ever lived. You know, he's one of the most conservative people in the modern era. He's pro-LGBT equality because his daughter's gay. You know, mm. once it affects them, suddenly it becomes, oh, well, yeah. well, of course, like, yeah, I mean, this is my family. I'm not going to fight against my family. This is, a, this is affecting even, me now. He doesn't even care about quail shooting protections until he's the one that gets shot in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is just so the fact that this is what it took for a bunch of republicans to be like holy shit yeah these that, crazies were coming for me for for yeah. me this could have affected me and that is what caused them to finally start speaking out against it i'm that tells you who these people are yeah i've i'm like on the one hand i'm like thank goodness they're finally waking up to smell the coffee in some small way, but yeah. I'm also f furious. Yeah. Like Con Connor Lamb said this, and it's really, I think it really captures it. He said, quote, that attack today 
It didn't materialize out of nowhere. It was inspired by lies, the same lies that you're hearing in this room tonight. And that's true. And like, and, and Pence came and said some things about how violence is not going to win and freedom wins. And you know, the people that attack the Capitol aren't going to win. And like, Chris Christie said it came out and was given this whole thing about how he's shocked and disappointed in the president and all this shit. And I'm like, you guys knew this. Yeah. You, we have been saying this. We've been saying, like, there were so many reports from the FBI, from, from uh, watchdog organizations, from DHS, warning of election-related violence around Election Day. Yeah. Because, specifically because of fraud claims. These people have been told that that endorsing these claims about election fraud, not rebuking Trump, not rebuking these claims, could lead to violence. And they've seen it. Like, the impact of Trump's uh, brand of um, just, like, lie-flinging and, you know... Um, like willingness to just dispense with the truth in order to try to get to uh, his own personal benefit, his his stroking of uh, racial and social tensions specifically to flare up his side. Like we've seen the impact in the stochastic terrorism events that we have described on this show before. Yeah. We know that this happens. The fact is that this time it just happened on a much larger scale and Trump happened to speak about it and 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 push his followers to do it right before it actually happened. And then they finally notice that this guy who's been who's been like not even dog whistling, just whistling about authoritarianism his Bullhorn. entire his entire uh campaign and administration like literally from day 1 people were like, "Well, Trump's got authoritative tendencies. He's he we got to watch out for this guy." And now they're just getting to notice and and now they expect that like when they come out with a statement against Trump, everybody's going to give him a, a a pat on the back and be like, "Oh, no harm done, old friend." It's just, I'm just, I'm so furious that they have abdicated their responsibility, their rationality, their like their their respect for this country and its institutions and the American people. Like, I am so furious that they have spurred this on and allowed this to happen in the interest of political expediency and their own personal political gain. And now they are trying to say, oh, well, you know, we didn't think it would be this bad. Like, we're really disappointed and surprised at Trump. It's like, he has been telling you. Sorry, I am fired up. (laughs) Yeah. Like, these fuckers had a chance to end all of this with the impeachment. Yeah. Like with the with yeah. the, the yeah when he was fucking selling America to try like like trying to get a foreign power to interfere in our democracy then yeah and that didn't and get he, their attention and he fucking showed us he will do anything no matter how illegal no matter how immoral he will do anything to stay in power and then you had Susan Collins come up like oh well well gee golly gosh darn it I think the president has learned his lesson. So I'm not going to vote to remove him because I think this has made him a better person. Are you fucking kidding me? He's God, never learned a goddamn bullshit. thing in his life. Like, <laughs> Also, the president of the United States is not your classroom 
like someone cheating on a test in kindergarten. Yeah. Like, yeah. when you learn your lesson, you lose your job. Yeah. Get the fuck out of there. If you are messing up at that scale, if you are doing if you are doing illegal garbage, if you are subverting your nation and your nation's system of laws and norms, get out of there. Yeah. We don't have time. We don't have like we are not able to sustain letting people totally screw up without consequences. Like that argument is total shit. Yeah. Yeah. The only Republican that I am willing to give a shred of evidence to is Mitt Romney. Yeah. Agreed. Like he's been saying Mitt this Romney shit all was, along and acting. Yeah, he's on been it. saying this shit all along. Now, look, Mitt Romney, he's a principled conservative, and we talked about on the show earlier how, you know, conservative principles are are dog shit, but at least he does have he does seem to have principles. Yeah. And from day one, he has been critical of the president. He voted in favor of removal mm-hmm. and he very immediately accept, accepted these results and continued to encourage his uh, fellow Republicans to accept them. And he actually gave a not half bad speech mm-hmm. last night on the floor where he was basically making the argument that, look, for the Republican colleagues, for my Republican colleagues who are still like trying to overturn this election or are still trying to stoke these fears, ask yourself, even if there was some type of, you know, commission on election fraud, like like was being asked, which again, there's not enough evidence to justify that because of 61 court cases that were thrown out. But like, but even if we did have that commission, and they were they brought findings showing that there was no election fraud, do you actually think that that would change these people's minds? Mm-hmm. No, of course it wouldn't. The thing that would change their minds is if you all shut the fuck up. Mm. And, 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 and the Republicans that started this, that started this whole, oh, well, we're going to get together and we're going to, uh, to vote to refuse to certify the Electoral College. Their argument was, well, there are a lot of Republicans that do not believe in the integrity of the election. So because these Republicans don't believe in the integrity of this election, it's my duty to to object to the certification of this. The reason why people don't believe in the integrity of it is because fucking idiots like you have been spending all this time saying without evidence that there was widespread voter fraud in an attempt to steal the election from Donald Trump with no fucking evidence. You created this monster. You created this, like, you're Frankenstein. You're Dr. Frankenstein. You created a monster. You have no way of controlling it. And you still don't realize that it's a monster. I think it's pronounced Frankenstein. And the worst part right now is that there are still people yeah. in my life that I respect on my feed that are finding every single possible way to like disassociate themselves from any responsibility on this. Yeah. Now, some of them has been have been doing the whole, oh, well, if Biden just made that, just came out in favor of that commission, there'd be no problem. And then some people have even been going so far as to say, oh, no, this wasn't right-wingers. 
This was Antifa. Oh, I'm so mad and, about that. And here's my evidence. Antifa wears black jackets. Some of the protesters were wearing black jackets. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I, I almost didn't even want to talk about that argument because yeah. it's so fucking stupid. I feel like I'm doing a disservice. Yeah, you're to giving it anybody. more than it's worth. Like I, I feel like it's almost a form of straw manning because yeah. it's so stupid. But people are actually people are actually making that argument that yeah. this was this was Antifa. Like, oh, one look, American they had News similar... Network was making it as the yeah. as it was going on. Like, like yeah. also, like, how would you even be able to know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Occam's razor, you know. The most reasonable explanation is usually, like, the reality. I mean, and the only way that you could come to the conclusion that this was Antifa, despite the fact that there's actually been a lot of fact-checking on this that went, to went and looked at specific conservatives that were, that were seen in the Capitol, um, like the, the weird guy with the, the, the horn helmet, like, yeah. apparently he was this... Uh, he was actually he actually has this nickname the QAnon shaman mm -hmm. and like he's this huge QAnon supporter um like it, people have actually investigated these people these people and found that yes they are who they say they are they have a history of backing up Donald Trump on social media like and the only way that you could possibly believe that Antifa started this is if you started with your conclusion and then worked back from there. Yeah. Like, the only way that, oh, well, I believe this was Antifa. Oh, my God, look, they're wearing the same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Must be Antifa. There's my evidence. Oh, they're using the same tactics as Antifa. The same what? tactics. Antifa's what? never stormed the Capitol building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus. Oh, you mean when Antifa is waving Confederate flags? Yeah, mm. yeah. This was a really dark day in American democracy. And it renewed some calls for uh, Trump's cabinet to invoke the 25th. It renewed calls for impeachment. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, the 25th Amendment allows the cabinet and the vice president to... Uh, relieve the president of his duties if they find that he is unable and unfit to uh to execute them yeah and honestly i still i still maintain that he should have been impeached on day one mm -hmm. from the emol due to the emoluments clause yeah but too. honestly every day that he remains in office is scary yeah now just before we started recording this podcast, he apparently released a uh, a video, which is different from his video Wednesday, in which he basically told his supporters, yeah, you should be mad. You know, the the election was stolen, and I love you, and you're special, but, but go home. Don't be violent. Go home. Yeah. Which didn't help at all. Uh, but he released another video where he actually did say for the first time, like, the election's been certified yeah. and I'm committed to a peaceful transition of power. And, I mean, that was good to see. But the only reason why that happened is because people met with him and basically told him, dude, 
if you don't shut the fuck up, we're going to invoke the 25th Amendment. Yeah, I can't imagine any other scenario that would get him to so completely yeah. change course. Yeah. Like, like we already know that he doesn't respect the law and procedure and the Constitution, so why would he respect yeah. the fact that they'd certified the election? Yeah. As soon as he's out of office, he needs to be investigated for sedition. I honestly do believe that all of the all the people in Congress that fueled this, that like fueled this treason and refused to certify the election, they should not like they should they should just not be seated. Like mm. they should not be seated in Congress. You know, if if they're saying that the election was fraudulent, that means their election was fraudulent, which means they shouldn't get seated. Mm. So they shouldn't be seated. Um, and we can never forget what they did. We have to remember their names. We have to punish them in future elections. We have to punish them to the fullest extent that we can. They were complicit in a seditious act to rebel against the United States. And we cannot forget that. We cannot forgive that. So now it's time for what would normally be a more lighthearted segment. Um, good, actually. So, Nathan, why do we do good, actually? Well, Michael, we do good, actually, because there is a lot of pain in the world. And sometimes it's nice to just focus on the good for a second. Yeah. And the good, actually, that we're going to discuss today is a little bit more of a nuanced type <laughs> of good, actually, because it's still very tragic. Yeah. But um, recently, a very good friend of mine who we actually had on the pod named Larry Yates uh, passed away. Uh, he, we did a podcast episode with him a while back uh, in which he discussed a book that he had written about the history of racism in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And we had just this awesome conversation with him. Uh, he is a man that I, I have looked up to for almost all my life, and I would not be the political activist that I am today. I would not have the same ideology today that I have if it were not, uh, if it were not for him. Um, and the reason why I want to put this into a good actually is because I just want to re remind people that good people are out there, mm -hmm. and... We may not have them forever, but we can continue to carry on their legacy. So yeah. I just want to take a minute and talk about my friend Larry, talk about who he was, what he did, and how we can continue his legacy. So Larry was a, uh, he was a political activist all his life. He was always passionate against racism. Um, he worked with uh with the virginia housing coalition he worked with um uh virginia organizing um he's worked on several different uh different policy issues through grassroots organization such as fair housing prison reform uh welfare reform and he was just he never thought about himself you know and I actually remember 
I, I, he ran for delegate for the Virginia House of Delegates for the General Assembly uh, in 2000, I believe it was 2013. Mm. And I worked on his campaign. I was a communication consultant. And this was the first time I had really worked close on a, on a political campaign uh, of any kind. Um, and this was back when the idea of a Bernie Sanders type candidate was just like crazy the idea of someone who is unapologetically fighting for progressive values and someone who is turning down any type of um political action committee money mm -hmm. or you know money from any group uh when the idea of that was just like ridiculous um but that was how he ran his campaign he didn't even he didn't even identify with the democrats in that like he was he ran as an independent. There wasn't a Democrat running, and he was running against a Republican, a very heavily Republican area. And he did end up losing, but he did generate a lot of enthusiasm. And and I remember when I was uh, when I was talking to him behind the scenes while we were filming uh, one of his campaign videos. Um. We were talking about strategy and we were talking about ideology. And I was like, so you'd consider yourself a, a liberal, right? And he was like, please, please, Nathan, I prefer the term radical. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was very ahead of his time because it is true that in a lot of ways, the system of itself in the United States, the way the system is set up is the problem. It's not just, we, we can't just do tweaks around the edges. We have to make systemic change in order to fix the many problems. And, and one of the things that Larry always reminded me is that politics, you know, it, it's easy when it comes to politics, it's easy to get engaged in this partisan game of, you know, my side, good, your side, bad. But he always reminded me that when it comes to, when it comes to political activism, it always has to be about the policy. It always has to be about what is being done. What are, you, what are you trying to get done? Just getting your people elected, that's not a victory. Mm -hmm. What's a victory? A victory is when you get something passed that materially improves people's lives. So my the good actually this week is to carry on that legacy. As political activists, never forget what you are actually fighting for. It's not for a political party. It's not for a political position. It's material improvement in people's lives. And that is the victory that you should celebrate. And that is the legacy of Larry Lamar Yates. Okay, and so now we're going to talk through the celebratory part of this episode. Uh, Woo! <laughs> which is about the Georgia runoffs. So yeah. if you've been similarly living under a rock... Um, only listening to our show, which we thank you for. Um, it's hard to get internet under a rock, so you must really believe in our believe in our stuff. Um, yeah. But also so, look at other sources. <laughs> <laughs> but so so not, not to promote our competition. Yeah, but, you know. but but we want competition. We want we want broad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want good competition. We want good information. Good. Exactly. Good yeah. 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 Um. So this past week. Um, the impossible occurred. 
(laughs) The the totally unlikely occurred, and the Democrats took both Senate seats in Georgia for the first time in over two decades. Um, So Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff both won their runoff elections in Georgia uh, pretty narrowly. Uh, Warnock won with 50.9% of the vote, and Ossoff won with 50.5%. And... um, Warnock became the first black senator for Georgia and Ossoff became the first Jewish senator for Georgia. So, yeah, huge. Although win. not as narrow as Biden's victory, interestingly enough. No. Biden's victory was like, what, 0.3%? Yeah. Like, yeah. both of these were over 1%. Yeah. Or were 1% or over. Well, which means that they're out of recount territory. Which is just awesome. Yeah. It's so great to have this settled because literally since election. Well, I guess a few days after election night, when when it was starting to settle in that this was going to be a runoff, like millions and millions of dollars has been have been poured into Georgia on both sides of the aisle trying to yeah. vie for control. And the thing is, what what blows me away is that it wasn't just one seat the Democrats had to win to get control in the Senate. We are two seats behind. And even yeah. with both these seats, uh, Kamala Harris will be breaking 50-50 tie votes, yeah. um, which is just remarkable. But that still makes Democrats the majority in the House. And the great thing about that, the, the thing is, this election was not against David Perdue. Mm-hmm. It was not against Kelly Loeffler. It wasn't even against Donald Trump. It was against Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. And Mitch McConnell, which, you know, I... I joked about uh, his bold strategy of I'm going to be the one thing that stands in the way of the American people and getting $2,000 stimulus checks. <laughs> the bold Basically strategy paying of that, people to vote against him. <laughs> yeah. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. And it turns out it didn't. It did not pay off for him. So, and, and Biden was actually kind of smart about this. Mm-hmm. Like a few days before the election, he went out there and said, hey, Look, you put these two people in, you get your stimulus checks. Yeah. You don't, you don't get the stimulus checks. Yep. And making it a referendum on stimulus on checks, on money. economic relief yeah. during a pandemic, like, I mean, what the hell did you think was going to happen? For sure. Like, of, of course you're going to go with the people that are going to materially improve your lives. And, and the concern here was both Loeffler and Purdue you know, at least publicly said that they were for the $2,000 checks. Mm -hmm. And it was possible that some people might not be able to put together, oh, but but the problem is that with Mitch McConnell still being the majority leader, that gets blocked from being put on the floor. Yeah. So, like, even with them for that, like, if if they get elected, then I'm not getting that stimulus check. Mm -hmm. But, no, voters were smart enough to figure that out. Um... And Organi- they were organized the, by people. They were very organized. <laughs> like, again, huge credit yeah. to Stacey Abrams and to all of the other activists that were a part of her organ- organization and other voting organizations to make sure yeah. that people were registered to vote, that people whose voter rolls had been previously purged were able to get re-registered to vote, yeah. making sure that people turned up to the polls, you know, having record, record African-American turnout. Mm-hmm. Huge credit to all of the people that contributed to this victory. This was 10 years in the making. 
and they deserve all of the credit in the world for that. Yeah, the fact that the Democrats turned out and the Republicans just didn't as much, yeah. just it, it is what decided this yeah. election, which is what decided the fate of the Senate, which is what is going to decide the fate of the Biden administration for the next two years. Yeah. Like, yeah. this could not have been more consequential. Like, yeah. it, and I'm blown away. 76,000 people registered to vote between the deadline for November's general election and the deadline for the runoff. 76,000 yeah. people. And and yeah. a huge number of the people that came out were Democrats. So, so 92% of the 2020 general election turnout turned out for this runoff election, which is amazing. Yeah, um, that doesn't happen. Specifically, specifically in Biden-carried precincts, whereas for Trump-carried precincts, only 88% of the general election levels turned out. And, yeah. and it's even more pronounced in, in, in heavily African-American communities compared to white working-class communities. Yeah. So the fact that, that you know, Stacey Abrams and other activists worked so hard to register people to get them committed to coming out, to making the stakes clear to them, um, and to reach reaching communities that were going to turn out heavily democratic, just made all the difference. And it was yeah. a lot of work. I think I think I think I heard somewhere that Latino organizers talk to every Latino in the state of Georgia. Wow! Or every Latino voter, that I should say. I don't think they talked yeah. to all the kids, yeah. but that is yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that actually brings us to another bold strategy that did not pay off for them, Cotton. Um, <laughs> which was the fact that uh, one of the reasons why turnout was lower among the GOP um, has been heavily attributed to the fact that uh, they were like they were sowing the seeds of doubt in the electoral system. Yeah. And there were a lot of Republican voters that were just like, well, I mean... I guess my vote doesn't count anyway, so why should I even show up? Yeah, if you literally are convincing your own voters that their votes don't count on yeah. on this ridiculously misplaced outside shot that you might be able to turn over even one swing state, yeah. much less three swing states in order to get the presidency. Like, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I hope it was worth it, Republicans. Yeah. You managed to temporarily salvage the ego of Donald Trump in exchange for losing control of the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Who then took that favor and made you look like idiots by trying to yeah. incite a rebellion yeah. <laughs> uh, the day they were certifying the. Yeah. Election. And actually, what's interesting is Kelly Loeffler, um, like the weekend before the election, like was at this rally and was proudly proclaiming, "Oh, I'm going to be right there, to, you know, voting against the certification of the electoral college. I'm making that announcement right now." And then after the whole rebellion thing happened, she was like, "Never mind." <laughs> I mean, at that point, what did she have to lose? I mean, yeah, at that point, <laughs> like you already lost the election. At that point, it's just like, "Well, fuck you guys." Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh man. Like. I'm not inciting rebellion over you idiots. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to vote but, for me. I only vote. I only rebel for people that like me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how consequential this is and what this means going forward. That's just where I was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. So number one, this completely adjusts 
where our energy energy should be in who we are fighting against. Yeah. The way I see it at this point, in the last four years, elected Republicans have made it clear that they have no interest in actually materially helping the average American. Mm. And they have made it clear that we should not take their concerns seriously. Mm. Again, I'm not talking about Republican voters. I'm talking about elected Republicans. Yeah. So any attempts at trying to appease elected Republicans is just stupid at this point. Mm -hmm. And we don't, and it's unnecessary. So now our main focus should be on trying to make sure that the more uh, centrist establishment corporatist parts of the Democratic Party um, push for the most progressive uh, agenda that we can get them to, to push for. Yeah. Which is, to be fair, we're defaulting to the lowest common denominator, which in this case is Joe Manchin and other people like him. Yeah. Which means that we went from a Republican-controlled Congress to a Congress whose majority is decided by a Republican in Democrats' clothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but hugely, with, without McConnell at the yeah. head preventing legislation from making it to the floor. It opens up so many more strategies and tactics for actually getting things done because at this yeah. point you have legislation you could actually debate and vote on. Yeah. Now there is going to be one barrier which we can't let Democrats use this as an excuse for two reasons, uh, and that's the filibuster. Yeah, totally. So, so the filibuster is basically a system that says unless you don't, Unless you have a supermajority, then um, a the minority party can do can threaten to filibuster, mm -hmm. um, which effectively like eliminates any chance of a uh, of a vote actually occurring for a piece of legislation um, because there are enough people there to basically continue to vote for debate to continue. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's basically a way for the minority party to maintain some measure of power. Yeah. However, you might be asking yourself, well, wait a minute. Why was it just, why did they only need a supermajority when they were repealing the affordable care act or when they passed the Republican um, tax bill? Well, the reason for that is because those were passed under budget reconciliation. So mm -hmm. the system of budget reconciliation, uh, it, it can only be used for bills that directly pertain to spending. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about how, um, you know, in the case of the tax bill, because that affected the budget, because that affected spending, because that affected the collection of revenue, um, it could be used under budget reconciliation. And because of that, all you need is a simple majority. Yeah, there's no and it's, filibuster it, for there's that. There's no filibuster. Now, all of that being said, the filibuster is not ingrained in the, into the Constitution. Like, now that the Democrats are in charge, they can just decide to be like, well, fuck the filibuster. Like, You why? mean by adjusting the rules? Of the, of yeah, Congress. they can just adjust the rules of the Senate if they want to. Hmm. Um, and honestly, can they do the that with just fifty votes? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. If um, they can get Manchin honestly, on board. 
if they can get Manchin on board. But honestly, um, so the filibuster, the idea behind the filibuster was with the idea that political parties will be able to negotiate in good faith. Yeah. But that's just that's just not the case today. In modern yeah. day politics, that's just not the case. Honestly, it wasn't it wasn't the case when Mitch McConnell kept using the the filibuster um, back when the Democrats had control under Obama. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell specifically said back then that their number one priority was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And because of that, they voted against the Affordable Care Act, which was a Republican piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was Republican legislation that somehow that somehow became the standard Democrat view at that time and became the demon of the, of the Republicans, which was just stupid. Uh, you know, I, people are always pointing to that as this huge legislative achievement from the Obama administration. And yes, it did make things better, but mm-hmm. I mean, he passed a Republican legislation, a piece of Republican legislation, and he didn't even get any Repo- Republican votes. whoop de fucking do <laughs> <laughs> And he had like a, a supermajority. Like, okay, good job. Um, so I would actually argue that they need to get rid of the filibuster. But, um, but let's talk about some things that, you know, that need to start getting picked up by the uh, by the Democratic Party in the Senate. And one of the first things I think they should do is D.C. statehood and Puerto Rican statehood. Yeah, that'd be huge. Um, now. You might hear that and think, well, Nathan, that seems kind of like dirty, like dirty politics because you just want D.C. to be a state because, you know, those are two guaranteed senatorial seats. They went 95 percent Biden. (laughs) Yeah. And with Puerto Rico. Well, I mean, considering how much uh, Donald Trump fucked them during the uh, the hurricane, you know, they're probably not going to be sending people to caucus with the Republicans either. So isn't this just politically motivated? And the answer is a little bit, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not the right thing yeah, to do. Yeah, it is definitely the right thing to do. Yeah. Like, I mean, especially there DC, a, there's no argument against DC. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, if Puerto Rico had two senators, again, regardless of what party they would have been in, if they had two senators, then Donald Trump could not have fucked them over the way he did. Yeah. And, they deserve to have that representation. I totally agree. I mean, you know, and, and it's DC. Also, it's also not a, a guarantee that they would be a conservative state or a, a liberal state. They, they actually, yeah. there's some indication that they're relatively conservative. Yeah, in some ways. But again, I we don't know who they would send. Mm-hmm. But regardless of who they would send, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know. DC yeah. is the right thing to do. Puerto Rico is the right thing to do. That should be one of the first things that they start working on. Um, of course, another thing that they need to work on, uh, which I'm I'm fairly certain is going to be one of the first things that they get started on, will be the stimulus checks. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, two thousand dollar stimulus checks to every American is going to be huge for economic stimulation. It's going to be huge for all of the people that are behind on rent that are behind on bills, mm-hmm. um, that's going to be huge. Uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is now a Democratic establishment view, which was already passed by the House, mm-hmm. that's huge. Man, that would be... Passing a that public would be huge, option. And it'd be, 
it would be such a win for Democrats getting things done. Yes. Like, I think that would just, that would be an amazing thing to be able to point to and actually get the attention of a lot of Republicans and swing voters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, passing a public option, mm-hmm. which, again, Michael and I have repeatedly talked about how a public option really does fall short and what we really need is a Medicare for all system. But, you know, it's still a huge improvement. Yeah. And we don't know what the contents of that public option is, uh, what what that's going to be. So another fight that we should be gearing up for is trying to make that as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. And comprehensive Um, as possible, yeah. Yeah, and comprehensive as possible. One thing that we should be absolutely fighting for is that that public option will have automatic enrollment for people that currently don't have insurance. Yeah. Like we should, we should be making sure that we're, you know, uh, fighting about these specifics on that. And again, that's a fight that we're going to, you know, thanks to this victory, we're going to be having that fight against Democrats rather than Republicans. And, you know, Republicans are never going to negotiate in good faith with that Democrats. We at least have a chance of getting them to do the right thing because they at least have to create the illusion that they're there to do the right thing. We have to, you know, and whether that's dragging them kicking and screaming to that issue or just putting a bunch of uh, putting pressure on them, putting attention on them, um, that's something we need to be doing. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has also said that he's in favor of uh, tuition-free college for um, for families making under, I believe it was $150,000 a year. Mm. Um we need to pressure them to make that get passed. Uh, he's also said he's in favor of um, student loan forgiveness up to ten thousand dollars. You know, we can try to fight to make that even more. Yeah. Um, or you know, but either way, that's still going to be a huge amount of economic relief. You know, and even in, in the social sphere, this gives us a chance to potentially uh, pass the um, equal rights amendment. Yeah, that'd be amazing the Equality Act to make sure that the protections guaranteed by the Civil Rights Act are also extended to LGBTQ people, Mm -hmm. which is also huge. Like, the Biden administration is not going to be perfect. However, we have an amazing opportunity to get some things done because of this election. And we need to be putting pressure on Democrats to do that because make no mistake, if they don't take full advantage of this opportunity, if they don't materially improve people's lives in the next two years, they're going to get their asses handed yeah. to them in midterms. Absolutely. We are, we have a very slim majority in the Senate and we have a much slimmer majority in the house. We are not going to win reelection for the house and the Senate in 2020 if we don't jump on this and make sure like, and hit the ground running Mm -hmm. and make sure that we are materially improving people's lives on day one. Yeah. And that is going to become the, the new number one priority of this podcast. And that should be the number one priority of your own advocacy, which means calling congressional representatives, speaking out and becoming active because I remember we talked about early in the primary process, actually like, like after the primary had ended, we specifically talked about how winning the election is not the victory. Mm -hmm. The victory 
is when those policies get passed. So let's turn this into a victory. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, our Ass Hat this week was previously someone that I was actually giving a little bit of credit to on a, uh, on a different political issue, but now has blood on his hands. Oh, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley. Oh, Josh Hawley, come on down. So yeah. what did uh, Senator Josh do to make, make it on our show? Well, Senator Josh Hawley was actually the first senator to bring up that he was going to refuse to vote to certify the Electoral College for Joe Biden. Wow. Man, and really leading. Everybody was like, oh, wait, we could do that. We can we can win cheap, fake political points. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people specifically point to him as being the genesis of the insurrection that occurred. And this motherfucker has blood on his hands. And you know what? He was working with Bernie Sanders like two weeks ago in order to get $2,000 checks. And you know what? That's good. And, you know, we should we should work with people on our terms to complete our policies. But this guy should not be a senator and he should yeah. be immediately removed for yeah. helping to incite a riot. And honestly, it seems like he hasn't really changed his tone that much, even after his own life was threatened by the riot that he brought upon. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, fuck this guy. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, he was like, he was walking by the rioters and like raising his fist in solidarity and cheering them on and smiling and waving and talking to all the people. And yeah, right before they break into the Capitol building. Yeah. And we actually, we actually were going to do a completely different asshat mm -hmm. until yesterday happened. So, you know, Josh, you, uh, you jumped the queue. Congratulations, man. Yeah, seriously. You were the biggest asshat this week. Well, yeah. probably besides the the anonymous criminals trying to overthrow our election. But other than that, you're just the no, no. Uh, the known. No, no, no. he was even worse because he was uh, he was a non-anonymous yeah. criminal who was trying <laughs> yeah. to overthrow our election. <laughs> so congratulations to Josh Hawley for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. So now for our last segment, we want to talk about something that is, uh, you know, very lighthearted. The death penalty. Ooh, yay! <laughs> we, so we have been thinking about talking about this topic on the show for a long time. This was one of the yeah. first conversations Nathan and I had in the couple of weeks leading up to this, to like deciding to do this pod. Um, I guess I should say one of the main conversations. Because one of the few things that you know, we have disagreed on it various times. My position on this has changed at various times. Um, and so we wanted to finally bring it onto the show and, uh, you know, have this conversation. Um, yeah. Because this is a discussion that we actually used to have, like when we were teenagers, mm -hmm. like when we were teenagers and we'd chill, we would, we would discuss this. We would talk about the principle of the death penalty yeah. and, and like, it's interesting to talk about because this is a case where uh, Michael and I, we actually come to the same conclusion, like the same practical conclusion, mm -hmm. 
but we have very different ways of getting there. For sure. And we have very different views on the death penalty, um, like on several different levels. Yeah. And in case you were wondering why, as teenagers, we were sitting around debating the death penalty, it's because we were really fun, cool, nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who were just having, you know, philosophy parties all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a hoot. I was one of the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> we'd talk about this no, and wasn't. we'd eat Mama Zuma Root 11 chips. And, yeah. uh, and that's pretty uh, Drink Hank's root beer. Yeah, exactly. And drink root beer. Yeah. We were, we were cool, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so one of the reasons we're talking about this is because um, in July... Uh, Attorney General William Barr released an announcement um, ending what was a 15-year hiatus from federal executions. Um, And uh, following that, five people were scheduled to be executed before the end of the year. And so that kind of is a story that I think got a little bit lost among all of the things that were happening this year, but shouldn't because its implications are really important. And this is a national conversation that needs to be had. And we've been having for for some time. Um, and somehow there's still just such entrenchment yeah. on this issue. Yeah. And and also, to be clear, th- this was a hiatus from federal, federal yeah. executions. So states have still been allowed to execute people this entire time. Yeah. Um, and, and they do the majority that. of them. Yeah, they do with the majority of executions, just like they have a majority of prisoners. Yeah. So so let me quickly just kind of lay the background of what is going on here. So so the relevant legal uh, component of our Constitution, or at least the main one that's relevant to this issue, is the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment um, that's in the Constitution. Uh, our Supreme Court has gone back and forth uh, at least once on whether the death penalty constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And right now they're in the camp of that it does not. Uh, yeah. So it is it is not a violation of the Constitution. Um, typically, the death penalty or uh, is carried out using a set of, uh, of chemicals. And they typically, there it's a three-part cocktail. There's an anesthetic, which, you know, stops pain. There's a paralytic, which which makes sure that even if there is pain in the person being killed, we'll never know it because it paralyzes their muscles. And then there's basically a poison, which is often potassium chloride or, or something like that, which is actually the thing that does the deed. Um, and note that like if there's no anesthetic, um, it's basically torture because it's exceedingly painful to to you know be euthanized with most of these chemicals so like botched executions are a violation of the constitution Um, and so like to the extent that we've had those we should be really careful about this and and recently like these different pharmaceutical companies have been trying to prevent these drugs from getting into the or from being provided for for executions because most of the world most of at least the industrial westernized world thinks this is a bad idea and they don't have yeah. it. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of layers to look at this. Yeah. Um, so 
where, where, which, what layer do you want to start? Morality, practicality? I think we should start like, with the argument for the death penalty. I think we should okay. steel man the shit out of that. All right, let's do because, it. Because the reality it. is it is super intuitive. I remember yeah. thinking about the death penalty when I was younger and thinking with, with a, a resolute spine and a very strong sense of retributivist justice that the death penalty was not only a good thing but a required thing for a, ju- for a justice system. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, if you decide that you are, like, if you got into the point where you devalue human life to where you are willing to take the life of an innocent person, then your life shouldn't be valued. Mm-hmm. Like, why should we value your life? Yeah, yeah. Um, which absolutely, I mean, on its face, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and um, and like, how could one say? in good conscience that as someone who has committed the worst possible crimes shouldn't just be removed from the face of the earth. How, how would yeah. society or, or our politic or our, 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 our polis not be improved by the removal yeah. of these heinous individuals? Yeah. And I would also contend that I'm, um, you'll be hard pressed to find people that are 100% against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. All you would need to really do is, you know, first take it to the extreme yeah. to figure out if there is a line. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if you go to most people and ask them, hey, do you think that, you know, if Adolf Hitler had not killed himself, um, do you think that he would have deserved to have been executed? Mm-hmm. I mean, motherfucker killed like 12 million people. Yeah. I think most people would look at that and be like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Like, and a lot of countries deserves to be, he deserves to be, you know, executed in a cruel and unusual way. Yeah. You know, and a, and a lot of countries that don't have the death penalty for ordinary crimes still have it for war crimes. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, and you know, I, I, almost everybody that I know that's my age, when Osama bin Laden was killed, mm-hmm. they were celebrating it. Sure. Like even people that are nominally against the death penalty were like, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. You know, he killed thousands of people um, in our country. He committed an act of terrorism against us. Hell yeah. I believe he should have died for that. Yeah. So, so then the question becomes, all right, so where should that line be drawn on principle? Again, this is specifically talking about principles. Mm-hmm. Are you principally against killing a person who has done something that is heinous. And so now the question becomes, where should that line be drawn? Mm-hmm. And, and if you would say like, okay, yeah, you know, execute Osama bin Laden, execute Hitler. But like, if a person kills one person, don't execute them. You know, if, if someone's crime is more individual and not the orchestration of a war crime, mm-hmm. then no, don't execute them. Sure. So, yeah, so on principle... Place. So on principle, I would say that it, you're hard-pressed to find somebody that is completely against it. Now, yeah. if you are somebody who is completely against it, even in the case of somebody who committed a genocide, then you'll, okay, you, you have a principle. Yeah. I think that you have a principle that a lot of people would disagree with, but at least that is a principled stance, yeah. and I respect but you for it, that. Yeah, but again, like recognize the, how powerful that, that intuitive argument is. Like yeah. The fact that you'd be hard pressed to find someone that at some, that doesn't have a line somewhere beyond which yeah. they think it is justified and not, not only justified, but good 
yeah. to administer capital punishment. Um, you know, that's it's a very strong emotional experience, emotional feeling that we think that, you know, justice has to be served in that specific way. And it's also very intuitive to assume that if there is a death penalty, then that deters crime. Yes. Because, like, you might be thinking logically, well, I wouldn't want to be executed, so I'm not going to commit murder. Yeah, that is, Again, that is like the big practical, one of the two big practical claims about the pro-capital punishment argument. It's the ultimate deterrent. Yeah, um, like, exactly. Like, certainly, a rational person like you or me, if we're going to go to jail and we really want to kill somebody, like, maybe we won't worry about it that much. You know, we get food, we get to live, we get to read, you know, whatever. But if... We could be killed. Certainly, yeah. your average criminal would would think twice about about you know doing like, about murdering someone or something like that. Yeah, and another thing, the argument that uh, the argument of hypocrisy, mm-hmm. the argument that oh well, if you kill people to convince other people that it's not okay to kill people, that's hypocrisy. That argument really is not a good argument, and that argument really falls apart. Um, so let's, let's kind of change the conversation so I can demonstrate that. So what if we're at, what if we're talking about just simply kidnapping, Mm -hmm. right? If we're talking about kidnapping, so kidnapping is where you are holding somebody against their will. Like you are holding somebody's body against their will and, um, they're unable to escape from their, from you. Mm Mm-hmm. So if we're saying that uh, if we're using the argument from hypocrisy to disincentivize the use of a criminal punishment, you would have to say then that it would be hypocritical to then imprison a kidnapper. Yeah. Because if you are imprisoning a kidnapper, well, then you're just you're holding somebody against their will. Yeah. Therefore, you're a hypocrite. But no, the issue is the context of why it is happening still matters. Totally. So if you are killing somebody like who is innocent and, and and it's an unsanctioned killing then that is different from killing somebody who has committed murder yeah against you know uh, someone who is who is innocent or someone yeah. who uh who was not sanctioned to be killed um just like it makes sense to imprison somebody through a legal justice system for kidnapping somebody else. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the argument from hypocrisy is not a good argument. Yeah. Another really strong um, intuitive argument is that when someone commits a heinous crime that would lead them to receive the death penalty, we owe it as a society, not, not only to our like our society our nation ourselves and our sense of justice but we also owe it to the the victim's family that they should see justice done for the yeah. the terrible crime that they have had to know that a loved one has gone through which yeah. like is a pretty powerful emotional argument yeah and the strongest argument and this isn't an emotional argument this is a purely practical argument that when I actually, when I discovered this, I actually thought it was a really interesting and nuanced way of looking at mm-hmm. it. Um, 
And that is the fact that people that are on uh, that are on um, the death row actually have the highest percentage of exonerations um, of any other type of inmate. And the reason for that is because if someone is sentenced to death, significantly more resources are put into making sure that that person actually committed the crime. Therefore, people are more likely to discover the innocence of somebody. If someone was innocent, investigators are more likely to actually discover that innocence if they are on death row after conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, it, a, a study from the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America found that... Um, uh, estimated that, and this was a conservative estimate, that 4.1% of people currently on death row will be exonerated. Mm-hmm. And they act, then they also pointed out the fact that one of the things that often happens is that people who are on death row, who are taken off of death row, if they are innocent, their chances of getting exonerated are drastically reduced. So you're more likely to get exonerated if you are innocent if you're on death row than if you're not on death row. Gotcha. So what you're saying is because we work so hard to make sure, we have so many safeguards to make sure that we're not executing the wrong person for a crime, Yeah. our justice system actually works better to exonerate innocent people if they do end up making it to death row because... Yeah. We, want, we care so much about making sure that we're not executing the wrong person. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting. That's Which interesting. I think that's probably the best argument in favor of the death penalty. Yeah, that's a really interesting and nuanced point. Yeah. So, so we've laid out some, some, some intuitive arguments, some emotional arguments, some uh, practical ones um, in favor of the death penalty. So now we want to talk through some of the arguments against the death penalty, against yeah. capital punishment, in general and, and, and specifically in the United States as it is applied and enacted here. Yeah, and then we'll also kind of talk about what argument ultimately convinces each of us because the, the argument that convinces each of us is different. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's, quick, let's, let's first address one argument pretty quickly. So first of all, there's actually no evidence that it more effectively deters crime yeah. than other types of punishment. Um, yeah. So if if you talk to the vast majority of, of law enforcement uh, professionals, um, they actually think that and observe that capital punishment, it does not... In, deter crime at all. In fact, it's one of the worst ways to deter crime. Police chiefs yeah. nationwide think that um, it is the worst way to reduce violent crime. And they rank things yeah. like increasing the number of police officers, reducing um, how many people are using drugs, improving economic e- equality, all above the death penalty. Yeah, and, and the FBI has actually found that states with the death penalty actually have higher murder rates than states without yeah. the death penalty. Yeah. 
which is cer- certainly a correlation, not necessarily a causation. You can see that yeah. that this might be a reverse causation, where states that yeah. have high, high murder rates want the death penalty more. But but yeah. a major th- component of this is the fact that criminals don't uh, two things. One, criminals don't take criminal action if they expect to be caught. There's no benefit yeah. to them. There's no outcome if they're premeditating something uh, yeah. to do it and be deterred because they think they might get caught. And the second thing is that a lot of these crimes are not premeditated. These are things that are yeah. done on the spur of the moment or by accident. So you have got something like the felony murder rule where if you are someone who's involved in a felony where someone is killed, you are then charged with first-degree murder, even if you were not yeah. the person that did the killing. So there are these yeah. other kind of factors that are in play which indicate that it's pretty unlikely that someone is thinking when they're about to murder someone, uh-oh, actually, yeah. this state where I live happens to have the death penalty, better not do it because I'd rather have yeah. life in prison. It might be logical to say, well, I don't want to risk getting killed by the state, so I'm not going to murder this person. But keep in mind, murder's illogical. Yeah. So if the action that you're going to do initially is illogical, then why would logic deter you from doing it? Hmm. You know, makes no sense. Yeah, totally. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. So, so the deter, so on a practical level, the determined thing is just, it's just not true. Yeah. It's just completely not true. Not a good argument. Yeah. If you're for the death penalty, you shouldn't use that argument. Yeah, totally. Um, another argument that people sometimes throw out there is that, you know, in favor of the death penalty is that, um, I like, why why should we be paying for someone who is on like who has done a heinous crime, who's the one of the worst people in our society, to live out their days in relative luxury in a prison, rather than have the death penalty? Like why should we invest in preserving this person? Um, to quickly dispense with that argument, because we have so many safeguards to make sure that uh, you know people on death row are not killed and because um, of a whole host of other factors it actually costs um, 1.12 million dollars more to have an inmate per inmate on death row rather than uh, if those same people had life sentences so even if it's purely from a practical perspective you just you think these people are worth nothing and so they should be dispensed with it actually makes more sense to dispense with them in life with life in prison rather than the death penalty yeah so those arguments shouldn't convince you you know they're just factually incorrect yeah so if we're talking about monetary resources factually incorrect if we're talking about uh, deterring crime factually incorrect yeah another important argument especially if you are convinced by the intuitive sense of justice that goes along with capital punishment um is that not only the potential for an innocent person being executed, but but the fact that it, it likely happens, that people that are not guilty of their crimes end up being executed despite all the safeguards we have in place. And unlike every other punishment that we have, um, this is one which can never be corrected. It, it can never, yeah. it's irrevocable. As obviously as soon as someone is killed, there is no coming back. There's no 
recognizing their innocence and 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 freeing them from that. Yeah. So like like people can't get time back. Yeah. If they're sure. um if they're locked up for a crime they didn't commit, yeah. but you can at least like pay them reparations for yeah. it. Like you can do something to try to make up for it. Yeah. But if you kill somebody, they're dead. There's nothing you can do. Exactly. And and uh yeah, so Nathan referenced earlier that uh at least 4.1% of defendants sentenced to death in the United States are actually innocent. Um, and, and an estimate indicates that the number of innocent people is actually is likely more than double the number of those that are actually exonerated and freed from death row. So, yeah. you know, for every innocent person that we actually find and exonerate on death row... There are like there's likely another one who is innocent yeah. and should be exonerated. Which, based on that estimation, that means approximately four percent of people who are executed were innocent. Yeah, which just is just unacceptably high. Like one one wrongful yeah. killing by the state is too many. Yeah, and my last the, the my last major argument on this section is that in the United States, with our history of racial and socioeconomic inequality, the impacts of uh, the disproportionate impact of capital punishment on poor and black communities uh, is just, and people is just, is just ridiculously high. Um, And it's not surprising given our history. And the fact is that until we can create a a society that truly gives people equal chances at at having good lives and avoiding horrible crime until we create a society that enables, um, you know, that doesn't have these lasting measurable imprints of a horribly racist and unequal system. We could never have a death penalty that treats people equally. So, yeah. So in the United States, um, 13.4% of the population is black but black people make up 41.6% of the death row population. Meanwhile, black people make up 37.5% of arrests for violent crimes. So think about that. Not only do we arrest black people for violent crimes way more, but an even higher percentage end up on death row. Compared to white people who make up 76% of the population, 58% of arrests for violent crimes, but only 42% of the population of death row. And on top of this, white victims, people that have killed white victims, especially um, black people that have killed white, white people, are much, much more likely to end up with a capital sentence. So although about 49% of all victims are white, 77% of capital homicide cases since 1976 involved a white victim. Which is, it's just remarkable. Yeah. And then the last argument that I want to bring up against the death penalty is just a general libertarian argument of, I don't want the government to have that much power. Mm -hmm. Like the government having the power to kill people 
is a bad precedent. To kill its own civilians is a bad precedent. Yeah. And that is not the type of power that you want the government to have. Mm. Yeah. So, Michael, you and I are both against the death penalty. Mm -hmm. What's the argument that does it for you? Well, I'd say, so like the inequality argument and the innocence one together really are the ones that flipped the switch for me. But fundamentally, the one that, that got my attention the most was the most interesting and now is the one that I believe in most deeply is that I don't believe that we should have a retributivist system of criminal yeah. justice. And the retributist system of criminal justice, uh, for those of you who may not know, is one organized around the principle that the point of our justice system is to achieve retribution or basically kind of like rebalance the scales of justice um, when crimes take place. Yeah. And the more that I've thought about crime, the more that I've thought about uh, our criminal justice system, the more I think that that is just not the way that a well-ordered, well-governed society should be dealing with people. I think it, I think it plays into all the, the worst parts of uh, humans' irrationality, and we're basing a justice system on that. And in the case of capital punishment, we're killing people over it. Yeah. So what about you, Nathan? Um, so that's not the argument to convince. <laughs> like, big in fact, fan of Boondock Saints. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. So here's 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 where I am with this. So I do often talk about a justice system that focuses more on rehabilitation mm -hmm. rather than retribution. Sure. However, one thing I would like to point out is. A lot of what fuels that for me is the fact that there are a lot of things that are criminal offenses that I do sure. not think should be criminal offenses. Yeah. So if we're talking about drugs, like I'm not it's not that I'm necessarily saying that I think all drugs should be completely legal. I'm not quite there yet, mm -hmm. but I don't think they should be considered criminal. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you should be locked up for doing drugs. I don't think you should be locked up for selling drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, I that is not the type of system that I want to live in. I have a much more libertarian view of that. What you do is ultimately, um, I mean, if something is a victimless crime, you should not be punished for yeah. it. Like if it's a victimless crime, it shouldn't be a crime, which means that we should also like, you know, a sex work should be completely legalized. Mm. Um, and all that, uh, when we're talking about petty crimes that are often based off of like economic desperation, like, you know, petty theft, something like that, we do need to maintain order in order to make sure that like we are safe inside our homes and our property is safe. And in those cases, I would say that a more rehabilitative approach to justice that does involve that might involve incarceration, might involve community service, might involve something, that that is where you do need to be rehabilitative. Where I differ, however, is when we are talking about the more heinous crimes, when we are talking about rape, when we are talking about murder, when we are talking about like um, 
the types of crimes that involve like reckless endangerment, mm -hmm. like when, when corporations specifically uh, don't adhere to safety standards in order to save money and in turn break the law. Um, I think that those CEOs should be imprisoned. And again, that's not because I think, Oh, if they, if they go to prison, then they will see the light and become a better person. Mm -hmm. No, I want them in prison because they deserve to be in prison because yeah. they fucked people over yeah. for their own, for their own well-being. In, so importantly, I include both deterrent, a deterrent system of justice and a rehabilitative system of justice as being outside yeah. of a retributivist system of justice. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I, when we're talking about, for me, like I, when it comes to, when it comes to those types of crimes, I want all someone for to the pay. retribution. Yeah. I want someone to pay. I want someone to pay. And, um, and honestly, the arguments that I brought up about, um, the principle of capital punishment, uh, are arguments that I believe. Mm -hmm. I do believe that it's not hypocritical. And I also do believe that if a person gets to the point where they decide that human life is not valuable, mm -hmm. then they, sh their own life should not should be, be valued. forfeit. Yeah. Well, yeah, their own life should not be as valuable either. If they premedit if they're premeditated and they kill somebody in a heinous way that makes it clear that they do not respect human life, then yeah, they deserve to be executed. They deserve it. However, <laughs> and I think that's a huge point. That's a that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, dessert is not However, the same. Yeah, yeah, they deserve it. However. For me, the only argument that really convinces me is the argument of of innocence. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if we're talking about um, if we're talking about the the racial justice issue, that is something that convinces me in the United States, mm -hmm. but it doesn't convince me like yeah. on the whole. If you are able to create a justice system that gets rid of the racist component, mm -hmm. then I'm still left with like I'm. Um, that I'm still left with, yeah, you deserve it if you, you know, if you are executed. For me, it comes down to the innocence. Yeah. I'm a strong believer that if the state wrongfully executes one innocent person, that is one person too many. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, and until you can ensure 100% success, yeah, you shouldn't. It yeah. shouldn't be there. Yeah. And there's no way to ensure 100% success. Yeah. There's just no way. So for that reason. I do not believe we should have a death penalty. Yeah. I, um, any one innocent person is one person who has been killed for no crime that they have committed mm -hmm. by the state that they have put trust into. Yeah. And also, I would even argue about against the point that I made earlier, the more nuanced point of, well, but if you keep the death penalty, then that means that people are more likely to get exonerated because people put more resources into trying to, trying to exonerate them. To me, that is an argument in favor of putting more resources into exoneration Overall, broadly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fact that we've got an unacceptably high level of innocent people in prison is a different problem than... Uh, uh, the benefit of the fact that we try not to kill too many people that don't deserve it <laughs> uh, ends up meaning that we pull more people out of prison. Yeah, I agree. That's a different problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I, I think it's, I think from all the people I've talked to 
so, so many people have different reasons for kind of opposing the death penalty. I, yeah. I don't think and I've for, ever... for Jess, it's more the, uh, you know, I don't want the government to have that power. Yeah, God. Which, which makes total sense, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, they always will have the power to kill yeah. people. Probably. <laughs> but, yeah, but I don't think... I don't think I've ever heard people that end up on the side of being pro-death penalty that have truly defeated all of the reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. It tends to just default back to, at least in my experience, well, you know, there's some really important justice component to them that that yeah. convinces them that beyond any other evidence, it's a necessary component of our justice system, which I argue it is not. So now to end out our pod, um, We'll do our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Uh, I mean, my, my highlight has to be Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. Like that, um, hopefully is an indication that 2021 is going to be better. Hopefully the, the riot is, is not an indication that it's going to be just as bad, if not worse. Um, but you're reading the omens a, now, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but on a practical level, the Senate is a huge step, and it's it's time as soon as as soon as though that Senate gets sworn in, as soon as uh, Joe Biden gets sworn in, it's time to get to work. Absolutely. Um, so for me, I I kind of have two which is a little bit cheating. So one of them is that I, uh, Bree and I were able to have a visit with, uh, my twin brother Taylor and his partner scout who were on the pod a few episodes ago. If you haven't listened, they, it was a great, great episode. So they're both on there. Um, but we got to hang out with them for like three and a half or four days, just the few yeah. of us. And it was like, Oh, it was just so natural and wonderful. And, just felt so good it had been so long since we'd just gotten to be to just hang out so it was awesome yeah. and my other uh highlight is that i found out this morning that i'm getting a promotion at work oh which is congrats, uh brother. thanks man that's been it's uh it feels really really good i uh yeah so that's another big thing for me today and with that thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum you'll hear from us again next week <laughs>